Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Lord Baelish. Eater, please. Are you heading to listen to Binge Mode? I'm going to the Irie to see your Aunt Lysa and the Bail. She's sensitive, so I feel I feel compelled to tell you that Binge Mode features adult content. Good, good. Very graphic at times. Good. I know how she is around Moon Doors, so wanted to warn you just in case. And now, here's Binge Mode. You shouldn't drink before a fight. You learned this during your years in the fighting pits. <laughs> I always drink before a fight. It could get you killed. It could get me killed. Today is not the day I die. Mm. You're going to fight that? I'm going to kill that. He's the biggest man I've ever seen. Size does not matter when you're flat on your back. Thank the gods. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Binge Mode! Yes! I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished shopping for some more protective <laughs> headgear, it's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason I like, Concepcion. I like to move around. You know, I like to get loose out there. I don't need a helmet that's going to limit my vision. I like to, you know, are you drinking wine? Yeah. So what? <laughs> you want a shot? Yeah, that's how I do it. You got a problem with that? You can find somebody else. Fight for, your, <laughs> fight for yourself. Jason. Yeah. The gods have made their will known. It is known. They want us to rewatch all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. Uh, so we are deep diving gods. one episode at a time. Requisite spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this episode and this season and beyond. So get ready to confess before you die. Because it's time to break down season four, episode eight, The Mountain and the Viper. Jason. Yeah. You shouldn't drink before a fight. Well, okay? I, you just shouldn't. Sure. Because that makes it a lot harder to remember all the little details about how so the battle happened. went down. Now, yes. fortunately, very few people struggle to remember what happened in The Mountain and the Viper, which is a legendary, iconic Huge. slice of Game of Thrones canon. But just in case, just in mm -hmm. case, let's offer a Brief refresher on what transpired in this eighth installment by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. And we have to start with the death that shook a viewing public. Get those bells ready, Zach. Up in Molestown, the north, <laughs> short ride south from Castle Black. The whores of Molestown were in a fine mood until the wildlings attacked and a massacre ensued. Let's get those bells for Molestown Whore! R.I.P. Molestown Whore! The 500,000th of her name. The bear of the maiden fair! There's a man with a name! Too bad you got hanged now for a cock! She, she died as she lived. Man, talking about cocks? Yeah. Belching a tune? <laughs> she had just come into our life. You know, really opened our eyes to different cultures, yeah. different different outlooks, different modes of thinking, ways of life. Different tooth hygiene. <laughs> gone, gone before her time. Uh, I miss ripped her. Ripped away, I miss ripped her away. 
in her prime. Over in Castle Black, news of the sack of Molestown reaches the watch. <laughs> Sam is distraught about Molestown Horde. No, he's, he's upset about Gilly <laughs> and her assumed death and the death of the baby. What's more? Several Night's Watch brothers died in the attack. Molestown, very popular with the brothers. Mm. Now only 102 remain to resist Mansa's waddling army. Not a lot. That's no. not a lot. In Marine, meanwhile, bath time. <laughs> it is. Gray Worm going for a little cleansing dip, and who should he see? Oh. Bathing nude at the other end, but Masandi, yeah. who makes the totally understandable <laughs> rational choice to stand up, reveal her... <laughs> Right. Full naked body, stand there for about 47 minutes, yeah. and then right. cover up modestly. But she, but the arm like swings up extremely slowly yes. to cover the breasts. It's and true. It's this, yeah. Jason, yeah. the gods are good. <laughs> the gods are so good. They really are. Uh, this is a confusing moment for everyone involved. Masandi seeks counsel with yeah. Danny. You know, Khaleesi, can you give me some advice about boys, particularly ones without pillars or stones? <clears throat> Later. A message arrives from Westeros. Oh boy, this is not good for my main man, Jorah. It yep. is a royal pardon signed by King Robert Baratheon, implicating Jorah as a spy yep. who was selling Danny's secrets to the realm. Danny, betrayed, despondent, exiles Jorah despite his best efforts. Tough to meeting. Explain. <laughs> that did not go well. A tough meeting. At Mokalen in the neck, the gateway to the north, Reek. Does Ramsay's bidding, pretending to be Theon once again in order to give the Ironborn holding the ancient fortress a message. Surrender Boat Kalen and receive safe passage, I promise, to the sea. Naturally, once the Ironborn have surrendered the moat, Ramsay flays them because that's what he does. Yeah. When has a promise ever <laughs> failed to work out on Game of Thrones? Oh, man. I was watching uh, Battle of the Bastards recently. Spoiler. <laughs> and Ramsay offers, you know, he offers safe passage again to all the lords of, of the North should they kneel to him. Right. Trustworthy fellow. Yeah, he really is. Uh, speaking of Ramsay. Yeah. Just slightly further north on the edge of the neck and on the way to somewhere else. No participation trophies here, guys. Roos, nope. by royal decree, rewards Ramsay by legitimizing him. No longer Ramsey right. Snow. You are now Ramsey Bolton. Welcome to the family. Huge. Son. Big. This is big. Dad, son, Reek. Everyone else. They make their way to their new home. What's that in the distance? Right. Winterfell. What do you see? Moors? Hills? Swamps? Some grass? Or the north, you dumbass! <laughs> Pay attention! Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, the north. The north. Yeah, sorry. Uh, in the Vale. Peter Baelish got some splitting to do. <laughs> the Lords of the Vale want to know, you know, how Lady Aaron came to fall out the moon door. Yeah. And Usually so sure-footed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Littlefinger, you know, it was, was suicide, of course. Back me up Back me up on this, Sansa, uh, who is, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Elaine, my niece, as all know. Sansa admits who she is, but then spins Littlefinger as her protector and mm. backs the tale of suicide. What a um, moment. Incredible moment. The Hound and Arya, meanwhile, outside, arrive at the bloody gate just in time to learn that Lady Aaron is dead. Arya. Cool, cool reaction from Arya. Laughs hysterically. Man, what else can you do at that point? Yeah. And then finally, in King's Landing. Guys, it's trial by combat time. Huge. And after leading the entire game on, against man. the mountain, 
Prince Oberyn bricks two free throws, <laughs> gives up an uncontested three, and then gets his skull crushed. Zach, let's break out those bells for real this time. R.I.P. to the Red Viper of Dorne. Peace! You were extremely dope. Miss you, guy. Mel, he was extremely close to not only winning the battle and living, but getting the public confession, the truth that he had been hunting for so long. Two decades. That desire drove him, but it also made him weak. And it gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it. Stick it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is vulnerability. Effectively playing the Game of Thrones is about strength, but just as often about the things that leave characters open to physical, emotional, or mental attack. We see numerous characters struggling with their vulnerability, facing their vulnerability. We see it most with Tyrion and Oberyn. And let's actually start with Tyrion because before Oberyn goes out to fight, you know, sure, in theory for Tyrion, but really for his own vengeance, his own justice, Tyrion and Jaime have a little pre-trial by combat chat. Great scene. In the dungeons. And Tyrion is as vulnerable as one can possibly be, right? His life is literally in the hands of another man and, you know, nominally in the hands of the gods, right? Tyrion is processing this vulnerability in extremely fascinating fashion. He is reminiscing in these final moments Mm. before the bell tolls with Jamie about what? About Shay? About Tysha? About Tywin? No, about Cousin Orson, the Beetle Crusher. Who? Exactly. So why? (laughs) Why, oh, why, Tyrion wants to know in these final pretrial moments, was Orson crushing all those beetles. This is a cousin of theirs who was dropped on his head by a wet nurse, left simple, and all he did day after day was crush beetles. This obsessed Tyrion in his youth, and it's the thing that he is harping on now. He says to Jamie, as I watched, I became more and more sure of it. There was something happening there. His face Mm. was like a page of a book written in a language I didn't understand, but he wasn't mindless. He had his reasons, and I became possessed with knowing what they were. And then he adds... It filled me with dread. Ooh. It's not just curiosity. Yeah. It's this, this ominous sense of foreboding. You're witnessing something that you can't understand. Like full comprehension is just out of reach. And this is the thing that he's harping on, this mystery, this masked meaning about someone's internal yeah. struggle, struggle, perhaps the meaning of life, right? And he says to Jamie, so what do you think? Why did he do it? What was it all about? I don't know. And the thing that I want to ask you about, and just in addition to just this scene in general, is mm-hmm. how do you think George <laughs> feels about this, this and how this aligns yeah. with his outlook? Well, this is an extremely meta mm-hmm. scene because one of the uh evergreen critiques about George's story, especially after the release of book three, was that the story is is essentially nihilist. That there's all this death and destruction, and at the end of it, the White Walkers are going to come, sweep everything off the board, and it's going to mean nothing. Heroes rise and are killed almost immediately as soon as you get to know them. Prince Oberyn, he appears at the beginning of book three, and is gone two thirds of the way into it, it you know, and it was, it's a shocking death because you're like, wow, this guy's great. Oh, he's gone. Um, and 
this scene with the Beatles is a, it mirrors that conversation. Here's Orson. He's crushing these Beatles to death for some reason that escapes us. Why, 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 why is, why are all these Beatles dying? Why are all these people dying? Why all this pain and suffering? And it's interesting because George has always rejected this right. claim of nihilism. He does not feel this. He loves these characters. He's building towards something. Uh, and his story to him uh, means something. So in that context, this is a, this is a really interesting scene because it seems to be, a, it's almost a, uh, commentary on the story itself. And it leaves open the question of whether this story is actually nihilist or not. You know, we don't, it, we think not, but actually we haven't finished it yet. Right. So who knows? It's not like such a leap to right. think that a character like Tyrion in yeah. that situation, how once again has he found himself in this position where he is one sword stroke or spear stroke right. away from death, right? And not even a sword or spear stroke to his own person. Right. But Tyrion always operates with a sense of purpose. And so does Oberyn, oh, right? Yeah. That is why, oh, yeah. as we discussed last episode, he was not only willing, but eager. Oh, he couldn't wait. Eager. Yeah. To volunteer to be Tyrion's champion. And Oberyn, today is not the day I die, Martell. Today is not the day I die. Deep kiss <laughs> with Ilaria. Oh, man. Oh. I'm, glad, I'm glad they got a last little yeah. moment there together. He is, he is never light on confidence, right? <laughs> but he is also no. never light on vulnerability. And he actually does beat the mountain. He bests him. He, I mean, he trade. The interesting thing about uh, this conversation and this fight vis-a-vis -vis vulnerability is he makes himself vulnerable physically. He mm -hmm. trades vulnerability for mobility. Right. You know, Tyrion sees him. You're gonna fight the mountain guy. What do you put some this, armor on? This dude. guy's seven and a half feet tall, weighs four hundred pounds, and is wearing plate armor, carrying a sword that is taller than my dad. <laughs> uh, and you're like in a leather smock. <laughs> It's, it's interesting. It's like it, it makes me think back to season one when Jorah is discussing, yeah. you know, the Dothraki, they're like basically making fun of him for his metal dress, right? right? Armor slows you down. Yeah. But the thing that's so maddening about this, right? It's devastating to have Oberyn ripped away from us so soon. But it's maddening because he could have just finished this. He that's could have, right? He has the mountain on his back, he yeah. has a spear through his gut. And all it takes is one more thrust. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't because he deliver he's, that? You know, as we said, he's he's on a mission to acquire justice right. for his sister Elia, her children. That requires him to get something from the mountain. He needs something from either the mountain or Tywin Lannister before he ends this fight, and that is an admission of guilt that they did this thing. Right. That the mountain killed Elia, raped her, killed her children, and secondary. That Tywin Lannister ordered it. Um, he needs that. It's been this is the question that's been burning in him because right. you know murder and death and rape and these things happen. Um, but who ordered it? Who who ordered it? Um, and that makes him vulnerable to getting smashed in the face by the mountain's fist and then having his head popped like is it? It drives me freaking crazy. Finish, dude. I know it's brutal. And his vulnerability, his desire for that particular flavor of vengeance right. is his ultimate downfall. You know, he's he does bring the mountain down right as we speak. Manticore venom is coursing through the mountain's bloodstream, but he 
he wanted more than just the mountain's death. He wanted public humiliation, number one, to publicly shame the Lannisters for what they did and for them to announce in front of the gathered might of the realm that you did this thing. He is attempting to take advantage of Tywin's, one of Tywin's few vulnerabilities, which is, what does Tywin want? He wants to keep his fingerprints off of it, Mm -hmm. right? Gregor, a pawn. Someone right. there to do Tywin's Perfect bidding. Pawn. What was the Red Wedding? Well, Roos and and Frey, they were pawns to right. do Tywin's bidding so that he could he could lean back at the table and say, me? Right. Who, me? Everyone knows the mountain's a madman. You know, right. he just does stuff and sometimes. O- Oberyn can't stomach right. that. And so he ultimately is undone by his insistence, his full commitment to basically to not settle. Like, it's not just that he wants to win. It's that he has to win on his own terms. Littlefinger and Sansa in the Vale, you know, the, the lords, ought we in, ought we not uh, bring the lords of the Vale into the ceremony? No, actually, yeah, because the lords and ladies of the Vale are pretty unhappy that minutes after the nuptials of Lady Aaron to this scumbag brothel owner pimp guy, uh, Lysa fell to her death out of the moon door. Kind of suspicious. Mm. And you understand why they are upset. Uh, Sweet Robin is in his minority. He is not ready. He may never be ready to assume control, real control of the veil. That means as Lysa's former husband, Littlefinger is now Lord Protector of the Vale, nominally in control. But he doesn't really have an army. It, it He needs the Lords of the Vale to acquiesce to his control. Um, and so they, they question him pointedly. You know, control of the veil is at stake. Lady Wainwood says of uh, the fact that Lady Aaron was known to uh, be strongly attracted to Littlefinger. She says, Lady Aaron's predilections were her own affair. Her death is our affair. In other words, Lady Aaron can do what she wants in her spare time, but this affects all of us. This is who will lead the veil. What's more, they're not buying this suicide thing. No. I mean, no, they're not. It's a little coincidental, <laughs> you know, and they say, you know, she was an odd fish. Everyone knew that, you know, by the fact that she was breastfeeding her 10-year-old son. (laughs) Uh, But suicide, she adored that boy of hers. I don't see her abandoning him, not by choice. Oddfish, by the way, a good dig, considering that Lysa is a member of the Tully house. She was a daughter of Hoster Tully, and the Tully sigil is a fish. Big Mike Trout fans. of course, wants to hear from the witness. I heard there was a witness. A mystery uh, niece. Yeah, Littlefinger. A girl with no learning. Scattered wits, I assure <laughs> you. She, she'll be no help. She can barely string words together. I just, you know, I just, we don't have to bring her into this. <laughs> and why? Because, you know, we talked before about uh, Littlefinger's the one true thing that he has ever expressed and that he feels was his love for Kat. That's transferred to Sansa, obviously. He kissed her in the, in the godswood there, the Irie. And so he's extremely vulnerable to her. She can she can roast him right here. She can, she can do him in. He doesn't know if he can trust her. And of course they push. I mean, there was a witness. And so he's like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, let me fetch her. Uh, <laughs> clearly hoping, okay, give me a second here and we'll, you know, we'll hash out our stories. And they're like, no, 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 we we prefer to hear her testimony unadulterated. Now, everything that Littlefinger has been working on all these years 
hangs on a knife's right. edge. The it's a, you know his as you said his affection for her is is absolutely a vulnerability, but yeah. also this is one of the only moments in our time with him so far uh-huh. where he has not been fully in control. Right, right. He's that is the defining out of his hands. His, his defining characteristic is finding a way to somehow always right. be in control. And he he espouses this yes. proudly. What's his whole MO? It's keep them guessing, yep. right? They can't stop you if right. they don't know what if you mean don't. to do next. They don't know what you mean to do. <laughs> <laughs> but he is now robbed of the power to keep anyone guessing to stay one step ahead because someone else is being given the power to say he did this or he didn't. And that's an extremely unfamiliar and uncomfortable position for him to be in. Like his life is literally in Sansa's hands in this moment. You know, we haven't really seen him this vulnerable since what? When when Cersei had her guards put put a knife to his throat, Uh, basically just to fuck with him. Cut his throat. Oh, no. I changed my mind. Get me a latte instead. Me, yeah. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing, right? Yeah. Sansa's vulnerable. Oh, yeah. It's too. a code, weird codependent relationship. Completely. Here. She is not just in a position of power and strength here. She, ever since arriving in the veil, she has had to completely recalibrate her expectations, yes. not just about this specific situation, but about basically human nature and people in general, right? right? She thought, okay. This is my mom's sister, my aunt, a Whoops. family member. Yeah. A good person, surely, maybe, right? Yeah. Surely she'll protect me. And partially that was reinforced by Littlefinger saying, this will be, you'll be right. safe here, right? But what what met her instead? With a raving, <laughs> a raving lunatic right. who wanted to deprive her not only of her lemons, but of her life. Right. And so what is the calculus for her here? It's okay. Strangers are unpredictable. Yep. Strangers are wild cards. And I need the lesson that Littlefinger has taught her, control. Right. Something that I know and understand. And so it's the classic, and he Littlefinger will say this to her later when they're they're debriefing. It's basically the, the classic devil you know. 100%. Decision, right? And it 100%. just so happens that the devil she knows is the one wearing the mocking. I mean, look at look at everything that's happened to her. You know, it was her father that brought her to King's Landing, where all these bad things happened to her. It was her father who essentially acquiesced to her marriage match to Joffrey. Um, she's, Fucking Ned. She's been through so much, and let's say she turns in Littlefinger here. She doesn't know Lord Royce. She doesn't know the right. the, the Lords of the Fail. They could easily sell her to the Lannisters, and why not? You know, this is treason to be harboring her. And so, what does she? What does she choose to do instead? She chooses to support Littlefinger, and why? It's a good move for her because she has something on him mm-hmm. now. There's a little bit of mutually assured damage, and she holds on to that because she feels like, okay, at least this much I can trust. It's extremely savvy too because she doesn't just basically put him in her debt, right? protect him because he's the the devil she knows. She also actually, despite not trusting the strangers, kind of does line up a few more protectors there. She reveals her identity. I mean, the best lies are the ones that are somewhat uh, related to the truth. And that's what she does. She she tells who she is. uh, And she uses that to make Littlefinger look much better than if she had maintained this Elaine story. You know, it's like, oh, he's, he's protecting me. You know, he's worried about what what could happen to me. He cares about, he cared about my mother, obviously cared about her sister, Lysa, cares about me. And and that's how he's expressing it. Look what a good guy this guy is. What a sweetheart. Yeah. What a sweetheart. And 
the last little bit of Littlefinger we get here is a chat with Robin, who's not happy about this. Doesn't no, want to. Robin doesn't no, no, want to no. leave the nest, right? And right. Littlefinger says, "Everybody dies sooner or later. Don't worry about your death. Worry yeah. about your life. Take charge of your life for a long, for as long as it lasts." That's just basically yeah. him saying, "Don't allow yourself to be vulnerable. Don't allow right. yourself to be ruled by fear. Take control. Find a way to make sure." You get ahead. Someone else is taking control. Oh, yeah. And it's our girl, Danny. Uh, this whole hot and arid scene in Slaver's Bay is a, a good reminder to characters in this world that you're always vulnerable till you clean up your past shits. Uh, if you were informing on your employer who, let's say, is a Targaryen queen on the rise with dragons and swords at her disposal... That threat of revelation doesn't just go away because now you've done some good stuff for like the last couple of years and you're in love with her, blah, blah, blah. If anything, Jorah's feelings for Danny made this landmine more potent. He couldn't bring himself to tell her. Right. He should, I mean. Ha- should have just gotten in there and said, look. Here's what happened. Here's my justification. Here's my explanation. I didn't know. I right. saw I, a, a way in I, and yeah. you truly and fully won me over. Right. You're the, you're the one. You're the true one. You may cut off my fingers like Davos. I'll do it. Whatever you Anything need me to you do. Need, I'm yeah. yours. I didn't. Yeah, I was trying to get home. I didn't realize that you were the real deal. And I now I do. And it's uh, but he, and he, he couldn't do it because he <laughs> fell in love with her and just couldn't do it. And here's the dagger. After all this breaks out, Jorah says, let me speak with her in private. Doesn't. And that's sad because he doesn't get it. He doesn't realize what has just happened. And Barristan, icily, you'll never be alone with her again. So horrible. I, so horrible. What did you think was going to happen? So and then, you know, And then, of course, there's the, the, the exchange between Danny and Jorah that finally happens. And he, he's, you know, ever so briefly tries to save himself. He says to her, trying to argue for, you know, why... This is coming out now. Who do you think sent this to Marine? Who profits? This is the work of Tywin Lannister. If we're fighting each other, we're not fighting him. Classic dodge. Yeah. Because you're not actually rebutting the substance of the letter, which is you were a spy in the pay of Robert Baratheon informing on Daenerys. But Jason, if people are reading about email servers, they can't be reading about Russia. (laughs) (laughs) It's really tough timing right on the heels of Jorah recently lecturing Danny about trust regarding Dario. And also they had that high point where she was like, yeah, tell Dario that you changed my mind. So brutal. I mean, that was, that's, that's the mountaintop of respect. That's the highest level of kind of trust that he's ever gotten from Danny. Right. And I mean, that- Since she's come into her power, I mean. Right. That, of course, is why, part of why she takes this so- I mean, this is tough. So yeah. hard, right? Yes. Trust is of paramount yep. importance to Danny, in part because Jorah has told her over and over again that it should be, right? And Jorah's betrayal makes Danny feel more vulnerable than she has in yeah. ages. Like, you know, in theory, who's the vulnerable one in this situation? Him, because his position is in jeopardy. Right. It's really her, or it's equally yes. her in different ways, because she let Jorah in fully. She looked to him for counsel. The fact that he is so completely committed to her campaign now does not and cannot erase the fact that he wasn't always, right? And that she didn't see that. She didn't know, which forces her 
to question her own judgment. This is my most trusted advisor, the person I look to for guidance, for leadership, for friendship. You've been with her the longest. And he was a liar. Yeah. He was, he was betraying her, selling her secrets. If she couldn't see that, right. how can she ever trust herself again? And if she doesn't know how to judge someone's character, right. how can she be an effective ruler? These are the things that she's asking herself in this moment. This is the compounding effect yeah. on top of just losing someone she, she loves, right? There's just an absolutely agonizing moment when he is begging, right? I have protected you, fought for you, killed for you. Pause. <sighs> I have loved you. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Love, <laughs> love, love. How can you say that to me? Any other man and I would have him executed. Yeah. But you, I don't want you in my city dead or alive. Go back to your masters in King's Landing. This is agonizing. And of course, it has to be said, at least in the books, Jorah got to kiss her right. once. He planted one, one on her. He went for it. And you know what? <laughs> She fucking loved it. She, she love loved it. it so much that she had to call Erie into bed to finish <laughs> the job later on. Go read about it. And now a reading from George R.R. R. Martin. Very explicit reading. What Danny wanted, she could not begin to say. But Jorah's kiss had woken something in her. Yeah, it had. Something that had been sleeping since Khal Drogo died. Once so tormented she could not sleep, Danny slid a hand down between her legs and gasped when she felt how wet she was. Scarce daring to breathe, she moved her fingers back and forth between her lower lips, slowly so as not to wake Eerie beside her until she found one sweet spot and lingered there, touching herself lightly, timidly at first, and then faster, until her dragon stirred and one screamed out across the cabin. And Eerie woke and saw what she was doing. Wordless, the handmaiden put a hand on her breast, then bent to take a nipple in her mouth. Her other hand drifted down across the soft curve of belly, through the mound of fine silvery gold hair, and went to work between Danny's thighs. It was no more than a few moments until her, until her legs twisted, and her breasts heaved, and her whole body shuddered. She screamed then. Of course that was Drogon. Eerie never said a thing, only curled back up and went back to sleep the instant the thing was done. Uh, for the first time, I think... Our producer, Zach, might be interested in reading the books. <laughs> From that uh, piping hot, virile scene, let's Woo! talk about the cockless Theon oh! very quickly. Uh, you know, Ramsey is always putting in an act. He wants to be a Bolton. He's always wanted to be a Bolton. So he's always trying to cover up that that feeling, that vulnerability, because that makes him vulnerable. Theon could have turned his cloak at any moment in Moat Kaelin with the Ironborn, considering how quickly he was able to shift back into, I am your prince, I am a lord who speaks without stirring fear mode. Uh, it really could have happened. You know, I mean, he, why didn't he do it is a good question, probably because it looked fucking pestilential in there and people were fucking dropping dead and coughing and shit. Uh, of course, the second the Ironborn give Theon grief, what happens? He's back in reek mode. He starts, he's, I'm, I'm not, I'm reek. And he crumbles. And if not for the fact that the other Ironborn guy was like, you know what? This sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> right. Uh, he'd probably be getting uh, his throat cut right then. One of the things that's always made Theon vulnerable, even before Ramsey, is his lack of 
empathy and his lack of understanding for other people. We talked about this a lot, the way he treated Yara, with the way he treated the uh, captain's daughter. This appeal was never going to work with the Iron Islanders. The thing he says to them when he goes, my own father surrendered years ago to Robert Baratheon. I watched him bend the knee. There was no shame. It was fine. You know, he fought with honor. It was good. He, he, he bent the knee. And what, <laughs> so what, of course, what do these hard ass ironborn uh, reavers do? The guy spits in Theon's face. No shame. Fought with honor. Only a whipped dog would speak that way. Or a woman. Are you a woman boy? And by the way, like, you know, misogyny aside, he really got to it right there. You, What's wrong with you? Right. Why? And you, a true Ironborn wouldn't speak that yeah, way. Yeah, what happened to you? If you are Ironborn, why are you speaking like this? What happened? And when Ramsay gets back to celebrate with Pops, Roos reveals his own vulnerability, his mm-hmm. naivete, his <laughs> stupidity. He asks if there's been any word from Locke. Unimportant, a cripple, a bastard boy. Oh, yeah, listen, that's number one, the heir to Winterfell. That's number one, the North would rise for him in a second, right. for Bran, uh, especially if the alternative is the Boltons, who are famous for skinning people a fucking live. Uh, you know, you got to think about this guy. And then Roos legitimizes Ramsey, gets the snow tag off him. You're a Bolton now. You honor me, I swear. I will uphold your name and your tradition. I'll be worthy of you, Father. I promise. Ramsey promises a lot of shit, by the way. Remember that Tyrion line, it's hard to put a leash on a dog once you've put a crown on his head? Well, to a lesser extent, that's what Roos just did. It's hard to put a leash on a dog that you just made your son. Right. Tough. And Roos will pay dearly for this vulnerability later on. Yes, he will. So many people set up their own demise. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right, Jason. (laughs) That looks like very light armor. Yeah, you know, I like to move around. Very light armor. But to each great warrior, his or her own, the Red Viper did not lose because of light armor or skill. He lost because of that vulnerability, because of that stubbornness. His ability, unimpeachable. Amazing. Supreme. And in honor of his spintastic excellence, (laughs) we thought that it would be fun to assemble the Conclave and head to the Citadel to debate the best fighters in Westeros dun, dun, at, dun, dun, dun. This at this point in the story, That's people. That's the thing. That's the key. At during season four, alive during season four. Let's start at the top. Prince, Prince Oberyn fought with mercenary companies in Essos for a while. Extremely experienced in love and war and poisons. Fought the mountain with a spear and won, guy. Like, let's not put that aside. And when Jamie was talking to Tyrion before this, you know, Tyrion raises a very good point. He says, the Red Viper of Dorne, you don't get a name like that unless you're deadly, right? <laughs> oh, no, you don't. Right. You know, he earned that name. He earned that reputation. And I also love, love, because, you know, Alaria is uh, oh. justifiably a little little uh, uneasy when she sees the mountain. You're right. going to fight that? He's huge. Yeah. And Oberyn says, size doesn't matter when you're on your back. And yeah. Tyrion has the great thank the gods <laughs> <laughs> response. But again, like yeah. Oberyn, not necessarily the biggest, not the strongest, not wielding the the most intimidating weapon. He doesn't have a Valyrian steel sword. You know, he doesn't have shiny armor. He's got a metal tip on a piece of wood. And he is fucking owning it. That's the other thing. In the books, people are like, wait, a spear? You're going to fight him with a fucking spear? You know what? If it's coated in poison, hey, man. it'll do the job. 
Number two, or maybe co-number one, it's really hard to say, Brienne. Now, yes. listen, beat Loras Tyrell in single combat in a tournament. Okay, it was a tournament, but still. Of a respected knight of summer, Loras Tyrell, beat two-handed Jamie Lannister. Covered in his own shit, but still. If Jamie had won, he was not going to be like, and I was, also, I was covered in my own he shit. He even said in that moment, they're fighting, he's like, you know, a little a little graceless, right. but good. But yeah, good, be talking respect. Yeah. He's like moving back and forth, testing the weight on the sword, getting, the, getting a read on her. He could move fine. And then, this is a minor spoiler, beats the hound's fucking ass later this season. Like, beats his fucking ass and nearly kills him. She was also... Kind of holding her own against that bear. Yeah, I mean, that she, bear had not killed her yet. Right. I mean, it was like it, this several minutes into the bear fight, and she had a wooden sword, and she right. was like, "What's she going to do with a Valerian steel sword?" Next, an oldie but a goodie. Yeah, Sir Barristan Selmy. This is where it gets interesting, in my opinion. Give us a quick mini, a mini Dell, a mini uh, Dell on Sir Barristan, Barristan, one of the most legendary knights ever, entered his first tournament at age ten, and age ten, young, snuck into a oh, fucking tournament one. as a mystery knight, age ten. Knighted by Aegon V Targaryen at age 16, Kingsguard at age 23, slew Malus the Monstrous Blackfire in single combat during the Fifth Blackfire Rebellion, better known as the War of Nine Penny Kings, and basically ended the line of the Blackfires, rescued Aerys II from the Defiance of Duskendale, really cool thing that I'll talk about later, among the greatest warriors Westeros has ever produced. Jamie says that the move that he used to, that uh, Sir Barristan used to slay Simon Toyne of the Kingswood Brotherhood was the finest movie he ever saw. Sir Barristan could still fucking do it. Now, super old. Yeah. Quickly, really quickly. How'd he get his first kill? <laughs> the Lance. Ah, quick one. <laughs> Next up, Braun. Yes. Cagey, cunning, sellsword. I mean, just the fact that he's here, where he, the heights that he's risen to lets you know that the guy can fight. We saw him take out um, a knight of the veil fighting dirty. Braun has always reminded me of a boxer, yeah. right? Like his strategy is. Tire out the right. opponent. Do whatever is necessary. The reason that- It's a thinking fighter. Absolutely. The first- you Right. You don't necessarily think of Bronn as being an intellectual, but he, he totally really is. is. The reason that he's able to prevail and save Tyrion back in season one is he's not wearing all that heavy yeah. armor. He's not getting hot. He can move freely. Right. It's an Oberyn move, right? right? Very much so. He can dance so. around, kick things in his way. And, and when Liza is so pissed off about the results, she's, you don't fight with honor. <laughs> and what does he say? No. He, he did. did. Yep. Right? Ron will do what he has to do to get it done. Hey, guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Next, the Hound. We almost saw them fight. Very effective fighter, if brutish. Uh, he's not one for technique. He's one to leverage his immense fucking size and strength basically to overwhelm people if he needs to punch you in the face he'll do that hit you with a fucking chair cut you completely in half as he did to some poor sap on the blackwater that said he does lose to brienne who fights him head up and kicks his fucking ass and i do feel like carrying Bron a bit of a wound yeah. at that point and though, i do to feel slow like down. Bron i do feel like Bron beats the hound yeah if they had actually if the blackwater bell had not yeah. told when it did yeah i think Bron could take down the hound in that 100%. moment for sure how about his brother the mountain Scary fucking big is not necessarily what you would call the most skilled fighter. He's just, he's seven and a half feet tall or whatever it is. And he's huge. And nobody, number one, no one wants to fight him. 
I mean, you win a lot of fights because you don't get in a lot of fights because you're the fucking mountain. Right. Let's also not forget that Loris was able to prevail in the yeah. tourney in season one with a trick. So the mountain, unlike Bronn, doesn't have right. he doesn't have the brains to match the right. Bronn. He's just about killing. Exactly. For, he's just about he's rape, susceptible yeah. to being outmaneuvered. As we have seen. Next up, Jon Snow, castle yes. trained, getting better at fighting all the time. Snow at this point lacks sufficient real world experience, we would say. I mean, he's really, we were talking about this yeah. off mic, that it's interesting that Jon really didn't get his first kill until pretty late in the show. I mean, when he kills Carl, he kills a few guys to get to Carl, but when he fights Carl, that's the first real like in it fight of your life. I might not win this thing. This guy's fighting right. in a way that I've never seen before. I wanted to give John credit for taking down the whites in season right. one, but of course that's with fire. Right, right. And they're, they're already dead, technically. And they're not like fighting, fighting. They're just kind of like, ah. They're, they're going after sure. him, man. Okay. And then of course there's Corrin. There's the half right. hand in season two, but literally Corrin was like, yo, dude, just right. like, just, just kill yeah, me Yeah, he now. lets it, just he, he throws it. And then he, so his first kill that we could find, we think is Orel the Warg. Who's Gareth. like a warg? Fucking, it's just not fucking a fucking Gareth. a warg. John, this is not this is not a knock on John's ability though, or his right. skill. John will be rising up these ranks quickly, rapidly. As soon as the end of this season in episode nine, he will take a leadership role yeah. in a huge battle. And if we were doing this list after that episode instead, he'd be a lot higher. Right. But certainly, everyone that we've mentioned previously, I think, would beat John. Would beat season four John in a head-to-head fight. Next, Loris Tyrell. In the books, Loris is known as one of the finest knights in the realm. That said, he's mostly attorney guy. Mm-hmm. Knights of summer. Knights uh, of, of summer. Knights of summer. You know, he's not out there fighting wars. In the books, he is sent into battle and is grievously wounded. Doesn't go so well. Doesn't yeah. go so well. That said, in the show, he's good, but he's not that. I think John would fuck him up, and I think everybody else would fuck him up that we that we mentioned. So those are the best fighters at this point in time. Special mention now, um, two-handed Jamie Lannister. Different ballgame. He, he might be number one. I think he might vault to the very top of this list. I mean, I know Brienne beat him at the same time he was tied up for a year, yeah. not really stretching and shit. Uh, next, Drogo. I know he, that's a Westeros guy, but still, let's let's just mention that Drogo never lost a literally never lost a fight. And then Sir Arthur Dane, Sword of the Morning. Mm. So those are the those are your fighters, guys. Amazing. Okay, you can all yell at us about the ranking. Maybe yeah. we'll revisit that. We probably will in a, in a little while. All right, Jason. You'd think that being tormented since birth <laughs> would give you some sympathy for the afflicted, but apparently not. Yeah. So let's teach you some humility. Give you a runway for that mockery. Let's head to the Sept, bathe in the light of the Seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning round style, you go first. Number one, Oberyn's helper as he's preparing for the fight, polishing his blades with poison. Franken Mountain foreshadowing, as we all know, the mountain will die from the poison. But we'll live again. Number two, Ramsey yeah. says to Theon, to Reek, you didn't think I'd let them live, did you? Right. Flaying's fallen out of fashion, <laughs> but it's tradition. <laughs> Where are we without our history? Yeah. Just an interesting example of a core Game of Thrones <sighs> idea being turned on its head and perverted by an evil bastard. Uh, number three. When Sansa is talking to the Lords of the Vale and she is admitting who she is and she's addressing uh, Bronze Yon Royce, Lord Royce. She says, Lord Royce, we met when you came to Winterfell. You were escorting your son, Sir Waymar, to the wall. Now, 
Sir Waymar Royce is the highborn Night's Watch brother who dies right at the very beginning of episode one, season one. You know, he says, well, it's a good thing we aren't children. <laughs> that is third son of Bronzeon Royce, Waymar Royce. Tough way to go. Yeah. Number four, Robin. Sweet, oh, Robin, sweet Robin. When he and Littlefinger are talking about life and death. Yeah. And Robin says he doesn't want to leave the veil. And one of the things that Littlefinger says, in addition to what we discussed earlier, is people die at their dinner tables. They die in their beds. They die squatting oh, over their chamber pots. They really do. Season four finale foreshadowing. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing more satisfying than a post-coitus shit. <laughs> Number five, talking about Sweet Robin again. You could see it in the way she raised that boy, feeding from the teat when he was 10 years old. Lady Waynewood complains. Imagine, what the fuck is Robin eating now? <laughs> Did he just like move straight to an all-time Soylent diet? Like, <laughs> well, this is kind of sort of like chalky, white, liquid-only diet. Oh, man. Listen. Tough one for Robin. Tough hit. You're that have that to, kid is going to have some issues in the bedroom. Yeah, he's going to be on Postmates going, who's doing breast milk? All right, number six. Yeah. When Tyrion and Jamie are having their, their Orson chat, one of the things that Tyrion says is he was trying to find out what could be going on here. And so he did some reading. What did he find? Turns out, he says, mm-hmm. far too much has been written about great men, not nearly enough about morons. <laughs> Doesn't seem right. Now, that is obviously amusing, but also just one more cripples, bastards, and broken things reminder. Why aren't more people telling stories about the little guy? Well, that's what George is doing. That's what HBO is doing. And number seven, Miss Sandy is getting her hair braided by the queen Mm -hmm. in Daenerys. Pretty cool. And she's talking about that moment down by the river. She says of Grey Worm looking at her. He was interested, you know, because Miss Sandy can tell. Oh, she knows. She can tell. She knows. Yeah. Uh, Danny says, what? (laughs) (laughs) I believe he was interested, she says. Masandi's like, have you seen me? (laughs) Yeah, if you looked at me lately, (laughs) I think he he was interested. Uh, And then Danny's, you know, says, when the slavers castrate the boys, do they take all of it? Masandi says, all of it? Yeah, you know, the the pillar and the stones. (laughs) The answer is, yeah, they they take the pillar and the stones and they burn them. They do this at the Temple of the Spears, the Altar of the Lady of the Spears, and they do that as a ceremony. It's bad, guys. Really tough. <laughs> they burn them on an altar. You get your fucking pillar and stones cut off and burned in an altar. It's very, very, very tough, guys. <laughs> not good. Do not be an unsullied. Okay? Um, okay, enough about pillars and stones. Let's talk about hearts and minds. Our hero wasn't mindless. He had his reasons for doing what he did and even for fucking up the way he did. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advance his or her cause in some tangible way. This week's winner of our champion's purse is... Tywin, maybe? Tywin! (laughs) This is a tough one. It was this... We argued about this because, you know, Oberyn wins the fight... Sort of. I mean, it's also just so fucking flawless and yeah. amazing until the last second. Everything about it. I mean, he style points, he, style points, grace. the way he looked, the the trash talking up to a point, the, the way Princess Bride line reading. Yeah, the, he's pointing up at the stands. Answer the question. 
tell us you raped her, you murdered her, say her name. Like it was incredible. Amazing. And I mean, I think you can make a case that Tywin in some kind of untangible way and the Lannisters were in some way damaged by this. Certainly, you know, I'm, I'm sure the rumors and the talk have been going on for 20 years about what happened in the throne room, right. what happened on during the sacking of his landing. But now, you know, you've been really been shown up by the Prince of Dorne. That said, he does get his head crushed like a fucking meatball. And Tywin can't wait to stand up and be like, yeah, Terry Lannister, you have been sentenced to death. Yeah. Tough. We wanted to give it to Oberyn, yeah. but we just can't quite bring ourselves and to do Cersei it. And also Cersei smiles, which lets you know that the bad guys did win. Exactly. Tywin, you see, at the end of the day. Yeah. Oberyn does get the mountain to confess yes. to his part. Right. The mountain can't wait right before he brings those right. thumbs down with full oh, force. God. Just a little grape stomping. Ugh. But instead of feet and grapes, it's hands and a human head, guys. I, and he does say, uh, right? Because Oberyn's like, say her name. Right. And he does. He says, Elia Martell, I killed her children and I raped her. Then I smashed her head in like this. Ugh. And then he does it. So- Okay, Oberyn got one confession, but he didn't get the one that really counted because right. everybody already knows that the mountain is a murderous monster. Tywin, at the end of the day, gets, he escapes. He escapes a really, really, really close shave. Yeah. He gets Tyrion, at least in theory at this point, right. out of the way. Right, a lot of, lot of loose ends getting tied up in this one yeah. moment. Who, even who though are threats it, to him? Oberyn's right. a threat to him. Oberyn's a threat? Gone. Tyrion is a threat. Obvious threat? About to be gone. Right. And now you're going to have, and now the path is clear. Cersei can marry Loras. Cersei can stop complaining about Tyrion. She's happy. Yeah. Gone. One threat gone. This Tommen's, is working out in Tyrion's right. favor. Tom, Tommen is going to get married. And the Lannister-Tyrell alliance is going to be put on a solid footing. This looks good for Tywin. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, you could argue, well, what did Tywin really do? Things ultimately worked out in his favor because of just a matter of circumstance. But that's kind of Tywin's game is right. to position enough things in such a way that they will work out in right. his favor. So exactly right. Not the easiest one we've awarded, but Tywin, here's our champion's purse. All right, guys. We hope that we didn't frighten you with our intense river gaze. I think he was interested. I, he was interested. <laughs> he was I'm, interested. T- I'm telling you, Danny, the way you look at me. All right, guys. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us next time. Yeah. You'll swipe right on us. <laughs> swipe right and on us. Join us next time. Intense gaze. We will be discussing <laughs> season four, episode nine. It's battle time, guys. The Ooh. Watchers on the wall. Until then, remember, every day around the world, men, women, and children die in scores. Who gives a dusty fuck Ugh. about a bunch of beetles? So I was down by the river and I was, you know, I was naked and I look up, you know, Grey Worm, right? From the Unsullied, you know him? So I look up and it's Grey Worm from the Unsullied and he's just fucking staring at me. He was interested. I know he wanted it. I stood up and he was still looking. <laughs>